much, Cody and the worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. And I know Braden already said it, but I'd say good morning to all of y'all here today. It is an exciting day, Grad Sunday. It's an exciting day because Sunday school started back today. It was honestly almost weird for me to walk through the hallways in between services and see the lights on and people in different rooms. It sounds weird, but that's the first time I've seen Sunday school here. But it was a great thing to be able to see um, and excited that we got to start back that this week. Y'all, if you've been with us, uh, or even if you haven't, we have been in the middle of an Acts series that we started a few weeks ago. So two weeks ago, we started in Acts chapter 1, and then last week, Braden picked up in what he called the business meeting part of Acts chapter 1, which somewhat he's not wrong. But we're going to be continuing our series in Acts this morning. And as we get started, you know, I think a fairly common phrase is, it's worth the wait. I'm sure somebody has, ever, has said to you before something is worth the wait, or maybe something has happened to you before where you said this was well worth the wait. I think we all know this, though. Not everything is worth waiting for, right? Like some things just aren't really worth the wait. It really just depends on what you're waiting for, right? It's like 30 minutes isn't a really long time to wait if you're waiting on a filet, right? Some good vegetables to come out. That's not that long. But if you're at McDonald's for 30 minutes waiting on a McDouble... It's kind of a long time, right? Like, that's a long wait. You know, if, you, if, if you're somewhere and you have about an hour-long wait to get inside of a big event, let's say you go to a sports event or some other thing, an hour-long wait to get in isn't that big of a deal. But if you're at Walmart on a Tuesday and it takes you an hour to get inside, I would suggest don't wait an hour before you go inside, right? Some things are worth the wait and some things are not. Well, in Acts chapter 1, what we see is Luke begins by reminding us of a promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. In Luke chapter 1, verse 4, it says this. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Wait for the promise of the Father. Then he goes on to say that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Soon, the Holy Spirit is coming to you. Wait for it. This is one of those things that, honestly, I haven't thought much about before this week. But why did Jesus make them wait? Does it really make sense in some ways? Like Jesus says, he cannot come to you until I leave. But Jesus had left. Why leave and then tell them, hey, now you have to wait? Because we all love to do that, right? Now you have to wait. Well, one of the things we're going to look at this morning is whenever the Spirit did come. And what I found this week, and I hope to be able to convey to you, is Jesus told them to wait because there was a significant moment whenever God was going to send the Spirit. There's significance wrapped all around the wait, why he sent him when he did, and how he sent him and everything else. And this morning, that's what we're going to tap into and look at. So if you would, open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the significance of the Spirit's arrival. And then after looking at three points of the significance of His arrival, then we're going to see what does this mean for us today? How can we apply this today? So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text. Heavenly Father, God, this morning we praise You. God, I pray that that our worship has been honoring to You. I pray, Lord, that as we sing and as we have sung, God, that Our hearts have been tuned in to you, and God, we're ready to hear what you have to say to us. God, we thank you and we praise you for the fact 
that whenever your word is open, you are speaking to us. God, that's unbelievable. God, help us listen to what you have to say this morning. Help us understand what you want to say to us this morning. And ultimately, God, help us apply it to our lives. We ask all this, Father, in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. Amen. So once again, we're going to be looking at the significance of the Spirit's arrival, essentially in three different ways. One, I want you to see there is significance in the way, or there's significance in when the Spirit came. There's significance in when the Spirit came. And one of the things that that I'm sure most of us know is significant moments, whenever significant moments happen in your life, timing is very important. You know, whenever I did college ministry, I had plenty of guys come and talk to me that would say, I have no idea how to propose. Can you help me, please? Well, the first thing you have to say is timing is of the essence. If you're in an argument, don't say, oh, hey, by the way, I bought this. Bad timing. You have to say that because guys were not always the wisest in those moments. If she just finished working out and she's all sweaty, not a good time. Like, timing is important. You've got to make sure how you do this. You know, but in general, significant moments, if you're trying to do something special, timing is everything. You know, a week and a half ago, Em and I got to go on vacation. Uh, We got to go to Cancun, Mexico. We've never done anything like that before. So it was awesome to get to go. But one of the things that that I wanted to do, because it was for a 30th birthday, 40th, sorry about that. Whoa, easy now. (laughs) Easy now. (laughs) I probably have not blushed on the stage. That might make it happen. (laughs) Ellis, our oldest, said she was 41 yesterday. We never asked, so maybe that's what it is. Her 30th birthday. Dear Lord, be with me after this. Their 30th birthday. And uh, I called her best friend and said, hey, I'm trying to surprise Em with a trip to go to Cancun, but she's going to figure it out because I am not a secret keeper as far as like myself. You can tell me your stuff. I'm not going to tell your stuff. For me, I'm not a secret keeper at all. If I want to do something for Em, I like pride out of myself to her. I'm like, you really have no idea what's coming. You just don't know. You don't know when. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow night. You want to ask about Like, I'm just really bad at keeping a secret. Well, I called her best friend and said, hey, would y'all consider coming to Cancun and surprising her? And they said yes, which I thought was incredible. And so when we began to plan how we were going to do this, I realized that their flight was getting there three minutes after ours. And we didn't want us to see each other until we got to the resort. So we had three minutes to spare there. Then I realized you have to plan everything going to Mexico. I'm oblivious to this. Transportation, all of it matters. And so we had to figure out that so we wouldn't run into each other. Then check-in. We had a specific type of check-in because I went through a membership of my brothers, and so did they. So there's this small check-in area, so we had to make sure we didn't cross paths. And the whole point of saying there was a lot of planning that went into this because it was a significant moment and something that we didn't want to ruin. Timing was of the essence. Timing was important. And what I want you to think about is this, because we talk about the Spirit of God some, but this idea, this knowledge sometimes numbs us to the grand jurious nature of what is about to happen. The Spirit of God, hear this again, the Spirit of the one who created everything and everything in it is about to come upon the disciples. I would say this is a significant moment, right? It is a significant moment. Because it's a significant moment, the timing is everything. And if you don't know this, God's got timing down pat. His timing is always perfect. And what we see is the when is significant here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Once again, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, just to remind you, a few verses ago, Jesus ascends into heaven. 
Then we have this in-between period where they go back to Jerusalem. They're told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. This wait time was 10 days long. And then we see here it begins with when the day of Pentecost arrived. All of them were together. Now to, to be sure, all of them meant the 120 followers of Jesus that were just talked about several verses of, before. The 120 were together on the day of Pentecost. Y'all, in order to understand the Spirit coming, we have to understand what Pentecost is. God's timing is perfect, and there's a reason that He did it this way. So fun fact, the word Pentecost is really just the Greek word for 50th. You can say you learned Greek today. It's just the, the Greek word for 50th. It means the 50th day. You see, for a Jew, a Jew would call Pentecost one of two things. They would either call it the Feast of Weeks, or they would call it the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Weeks was given to them. It was told that after, after Passover, if you remember back in Egypt, whenever the Passover happened, the Passover came over, and if they didn't have blood over the door frame of their door, then Jesus would kill, or God would kill their firstborn son. But if they did have blood over the door frame, they would be passed over, if you all remember that. Well, after they get out of Egypt, God gives them a certain feast to celebrate. In Leviticus 23, 19, if you want to have any, or 23, 15, if you want to have a reference, he tells them that seven sevens, a week of weeks after the Passover, celebrate the Feast of Weeks. A week of weeks. What that means is seven sevens. So in other words, 49 days, a week of weeks. It was called a Feast of Weeks, meaning the time frame when they were to celebrate it. Now, the why to celebrate it is in several other places in the Old Testament as well. It's called the Feast of Harvest because this whole point of this God said, celebrate this feast as a feast of thanksgiving. Give thanks to God for the first of the wheat harvest that he has given to you. God has blessed you, so come together 50 days after Passover and celebrate the feast of harvest, celebrating the way that God has blessed them so richly. It's a thanksgiving celebration. Another interesting thing to note about, about Pentecost is over time, the Jews began to celebrate this as also the time whenever God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses. You see, it was about 50 days from the time that Passover happened to whenever they were at Mount Sinai and Moses received the law. So Pentecost had a lot of meaning to it. It was divinely given by God a week of weeks, 50 days after. Celebrate this. It's a celebration of thanksgiving for the first of the harvest that God had given them. And it was a celebration that the law had been given to Moses. Now, to, to be sure, Pentecost was actually a festival. It was a festival. This is a one-day festival where Jews from all over the known world would come together to worship God. Now, just as a reminder, 500 plus years before this, all of the Jewish people used to be in the Promised Land. Well, they got scattered because of the exile. They were taken over. If you don't remember that, the Babylons came in, took over them. They were scattered. After that, they were scattered all over the Roman Empire, essentially. Well, during this feast, they would all come back together in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, to give thanks to God, to worship Him for the giving of the law and in the many ways that they have blessed Him. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 5. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. It says it's Pentecost. Now, to be clear, I want you to again see the timing. Verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Think about the timing of when God chose to send his spirit. 
It just so happened to be whenever people from all nations were in Jerusalem. Why? His timing was important. You know, Luke actually expounds on this a little bit more if you go down to verse 9. Look at verse 9 through 11. He says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are Gentiles who became Jews. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. I actually have a map pulled up. I want you to see, just a, get a little bit of an idea of what's going on. So this is somewhat of a rough, I guess you could say rough location from all the areas that Luke lists and how they came to Jerusalem. Now, as you look at this, I want you to remember, what was the mission that Jesus gave to the disciples? Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But it's interesting. Whenever God sends the Spirit, it just so happens to be that the nations have come to them. The nations are all gathered together in Jerusalem. It just so happens, right? Not at all. What we see is the timing whenever God sent the Spirit is extremely significant. I like how R. Kent Hughes says this. He said, Pentecost, because it was 50 days after Passover tended to land in late May or early June. It was the best attended of all the great feasts because traveling conditions were at their best. There was never a more diverse gathering in Jerusalem than this one. In other words, it was the perfect time for the descent of the Holy Spirit of God. God chose when to send the Spirit, and there was a specific time that God chose to do so. So first we see this, there's significance in when he came. The second thing we see in this story is there's significance in how the Spirit came. There is significance in how the Spirit came. Why don't you look at verses 2 through 4. So first it tells us when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And then it says how this happened. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What we see here is the way that the Spirit came, how the Spirit came. We see three signs, if you will, came with this. One, we see there was a sound that was involved. There was a sound that was involved. Look again at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven... A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it had filled the entire house where they were sitting. I never thought about this until this week, but you notice they didn't feel the wind. They heard it. It wasn't like that they had this actual windstorm where they were at. No, no, they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Why? Well, one, if you've never heard of this word before, it's not really normal, but there's a word called theophany. It's just theophany. It's, it's a presence of God. In the Old Testament, whenever you see this, this presence of God being with man, it's called a theophany. And so often, theophanies in the Old Testament come through the wind. God shows himself through the wind, or his presence is made known through the wind. That's part of it, maybe. But one of the more interesting things to think about is the Hebrew word for wind and the Greek word for wind are the exact same word used for spirit. It's the exact same word used for the Spirit. Whenever you see the Spirit 
in the New Testament. It could be wind, breath, or spirit. You have to understand the context. Which one is it? So the wind in coming and hearing the wind, it was an indicator that the spirit was arriving. It was reminding them that the spirit was coming. And y'all, to, 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 to be honest or to make sure we get the emphasis here, this mighty rushing wind isn't like somebody was just blowing in their ear. It could be mistaken for something. Mighty rushing wind is more like a tornado. All of a sudden, they hear this sound of this mighty rushing wind and thinking, what in the world is going on? It's the spirit that had come. You know, I'm not going to say that this ties into this, but one of the first things I think about is at the beginning of creation, God forms Adam right out of the dust, and then he breathes the breath of life into him, the spirit of life into him. And now we see whenever the spirit comes down, it's almost like he's breathing the spirit back into them. There was a sound. There was a sound of wind. The second way that we see how he came was they saw something. There was sight. Something happened. They saw something that wasn't normal. First, it was a sound. Second, it was sight. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What you need to see here as well is, is, is Luke is capturing, describing as best as he can. The first thing, they heard something that sounded like a mighty rushing wind. The second thing is they see something that looked a lot like a tongue of fire. First, you might wonder, wind, why wind? Second, you see fire, why fire? Well, once again, in the Old Testament, many of the theophanies where God's presence was made known, it comes through fire. There's several easy examples for us. Think of the burning bush, the bush that's on fire, right? The fire symbolized the presence of God. Think about after that, whenever God led his people out of Egypt, how did he do so at night? With a pillar of fire. Whenever they get to Mount Sinai, what's at Mount Sinai? It says the mountain was covered in smoke and fire because God's presence was there. Whenever God gave them the instructions of how to build the tent or the tabernacle, whenever he built it, fire came and rested upon it, showed the presence of God was there. But what I want you to see is what's interesting here. Notice how he comes. Once again, verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. You see, whenever Jesus, had, or whenever it was made known that God's presence was, was with his people in the Old Testament, it was always ah, singular, pillar of fire. It was one pillar of fire, or it was fire in one location, but they see divided tongues of fire that was resting on, the very end says, on each one of them. In other words, whatever they saw that looked like a tongue of fire was with each and every person in that room. What's the point? Is God's presence was no longer in a certain place. God's presence was with each one of them. And the way they saw it was making known to them that my presence is now with you. The presence of God is with you. And before this happened, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go through a priest in a certain place. So if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. And once you got to the temple, you'd have to go through a priest to actually have any access to God. Well, now the temple is no longer a building. The temple is us. I'm sure maybe you've heard this before, that we now are the temple of God. The temple is wherever God's presence is. And that's what we see here. You see Peter actually talk about this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, he says this. 
Maybe he says this. I think he says this. First Peter 2, 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. In other words, used to, you'd have to go to a place. What Peter is saying here is now each of us are living stones. We build up the temple of God ourselves because God's presence is with us. This is by no means a one-to-one, but I kind of think of it like this. You know, modern medicine has made many advancements. I mean, even the way of just you go to the doctor looks very different today than even whenever I was a kid. And I'm sure whenever many of you were children, it looked very, very different. You know, whenever I actually had a sickness or had something I needed to get looked at, I would go to the doctor, and then the Internet came out. And we all know Google is the best doctor there is, right? You put your symptoms into Google, and you realize that you have the most rare form of pancreatic cancer there's ever been known to man, right? Like, all I had, I just had chest issues. Like, what in the world? You know, don't ever use Google as your doctor. But online, you have opportunities there. Then online advice, online chat rooms where if you were sick and didn't want to go in, you could actually go online and chat with a doctor to talk to them. Well, then now even during COVID, you could have Zoom calls where you video chat with a doctor. I'm not sure if any of y'all have ever done that, but now you can video chat at some point with a doctor to see what's going on or to talk with him. I want you to imagine if the next thing that came out were a bus of doctors. And anytime you're sick, you just call that bus and they swing by your house and a doctor jumps out and comes inside. That'd be kind of interesting, right? I'm sure they'd get a lot of business. But I want you to imagine one even better than that. Imagine if a doctor was specifically your doctor and their job was to stay by your side through everything. For me, which I'm fairly accident prone, I don't like to admit that, but I'm fairly accident prone, that would be very nice. What's going on here is something much more profound than that. But it's the same idea. Used to you had to go to somewhere. Now he is with you. The significance in how the Spirit came through divided tongues of fire is he wanted them to see that each of them had the presence of God resting in them. So we see there was a sound. We see there was a sight. Last we see speech. We see something happen to their speech. Look at verse 4. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Yo, I've tried to imagine this scene. And I would encourage you, try to imagine this scene. You're in a room with 120 other people. There's more people in here than that, but imagine being in this room. And all of a sudden, you hear the sound of a tornado like it's on top of you. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're looking at other people and you see a tongue that looks like a tongue of fire on top of everybody resting on them. And then you go to speak and you're talking in a language you didn't know 10 seconds ago. In my notes, I actually put, what in the world? <laughs> right? Like, what in the world is going on here? Why in the world would the Spirit come this way? Now, remember, I said this two weeks ago. We will say this over and over again. You have to be careful whenever you read narratives. Narratives are descriptive. They tell you what happened. They're not prescriptive. They don't tell you how it always happens. There are people who today would tell you if it doesn't happen like this, if you don't speak in tongues and you don't have the Spirit within you, that's not true. As a matter of fact, it never happens like this again. In the book of Acts, it doesn't happen like this again. In the same way with these same manifestations and gifts. There's nowhere commanded that this is the way it has to happen. That's not why. Why did the Spirit come this way? Once again, remember the timing. Remember what's going on in Jerusalem 
at this time. And I want you to look at verses 5 through 13 with me once again. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Or in other words, these people are just drunk. Which would be a miracle in itself if a drunk person learned how to speak a new language after 10 seconds, right? We'll talk about that some next week whenever Peter addresses this. But what in the world is going on here? Why would the Spirit manifest Himself this way? The timing says everything. People from all nations are gathered in one spot. How can you get their attention to tell them something new has happened? How can you get their attention to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can you get their attention as they're there as Jews celebrating a festival to tell them a greater harvest is coming? To tell them something better than the law of Moses is here. How do you get their attention? For the Spirit, it was nothing. Just speaking the different languages. We see why they came. The when and the how is everything. It's significant even, and notice how they talked about them. In verse 6 again, it says, We're hearing them speak in our own language. Verse 7, They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Like, we can't understand this, but this was a cut at these people. How are Galileans speaking in different languages? Now, Galileans were known to be very limited in their speech. They couldn't make guttural noises, which is anything in the back of your mouth whenever you're trying to talk, like a cuh or something like that. They couldn't make these noises. They had funny accents. Basically, I heard a guy say this, and I think it's right. They were the country bumpkins of their day, essentially. And I heard one guy, he said, this would be just as strange as if you were in Louisiana and all the Duck Dynasty people started speaking in Mandarin. Like, you'd be going, what? These guys? Really? Right? That's what they're saying here. Notice how they respond. They were amazed, bewildered, astonished, perplexed. They could not believe what was going on, which led them to a question. What does this mean? What does this mean? And we'll get to where Peter actually answers that question next week. But for this week, what I want you to see is the Spirit's coming had grand significance all around it. Before we move on to the last way it was significant, I want you to think about this. Notice the first time the Spirit empowered and filled anybody, it was for the sake of others. It wasn't for themselves. It's for the sake of others. Notice the first time the gospel is ever preached, it's done in all languages. What does this say about our God? Is the gospel is for the nations. The gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter your color, your background, your culture, whatever it is. God's word, the gospel is for the nations. And the Spirit came at a specific moment, at a specific time, in a specific way to show this is true. The gospel is for everyone. You know, one of the neat things about this as well is many people look at the Pentecost and they see it almost as a reversal of the Tower of Babel. 
If you remember in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, there was one unified nation, and they try to build up this tower. And essentially they say, we're going to reach God and show Him our stuff, essentially. Show Him how awesome we are. Show Him that we're the ones who rule down here. And if you remember what happened in Babel, this is almost like a reversal of that. People tried to reach up to God to build up a name for themselves, but here God is reaching down to people by giving us His Spirit. At Babel, God confused their speech to where they could no longer communicate, but here God is using different speech to unify them in Christ. At Babel, if you remember, God divided the people, giving them different languages. That's where nations were born. But here God is using one or all the languages to unify a new nation under Christ. It's almost a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Y'all, God's timing is perfect. Always. He sent the Spirit when it was time to send the Spirit. He sent Him how? He sent Him for a reason, to help them understand the wind, the Spirit's with you. The fire, the presence of God is with each of you now. And the sign is, I'm going to use this to share the gospel to people around you. I can imagine being a part of this as crazy as it possibly would be. I'm sure it was incredible. But one, we see significance in when the Spirit came. Secondly, we see significance in how the Spirit came. And lastly, we see significance in why he came. We see the significance in why he came. I want you to see one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples. John 15, 4. 4 and 5, he says this. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Then notice what he says next. Jesus repeats it for emphasis. He wants to make sure they understand. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You think Jesus told them to wait because he wanted to remind them, without me, you're not going to do it. You're going to fail. Stop. I think Jesus told them to wait to, to show them that whenever I come upon you, remember I told you, you'll do greater works than me? You think Jesus sent the Spirit the way he did, how he did, why he did? He wanted to show them that before the Spirit, your job is just to wait. You can't do this on your own. But after I'm here, you can do anything because I'm with you. You'll remember how daunting the task was that Jesus gave to them. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem where I was crucified 40 days ago. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, where I was rejected during all of my ministry. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria, where there are enemies. They hate us. We hate them, essentially. Jews hated Samarians. And you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. No doubt the disciples were thinking, how is that going to be possible? How is it going to be possible? I'm sure they could remember whenever Jesus said, what's impossible with you is possible with me. Why did the Spirit come this way? He came so that they might complete the mission Jesus had given them. To remind them, with me, success. Without me, failure. But he came also to show them what God could do through them. Y'all think about this. In an hour, God accomplished more through them than they could have the rest of their life by themselves. In a moment, God did more through them than they could have ever done by themselves. What is the point? Jesus said, you will get power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It became very apparent, I'm sure, to the disciples that something 
different had happened. You know, we live in a world that overpromises and underdelivers all the time. I mean, all the time, right? I feel that way anytime I go somewhere and I see some sign in the background, world famous whatever. I'm like, come on now. We went to Paris the other day. I saw that sign in a restaurant, world famous mozzarella sticks or whatever it is. I'm like, let's be real. I didn't even know who you were 20 minutes ago. These aren't world famous, right? Sometimes I like to get those things, and then you realize it's pretty, pretty underwhelming whenever half the time it's just a sign on a wall, not really true. I'm an avid Amazon buyer. If you buy anything from Amazon, you know a lot of stuff says Amazon's choice. So that's like the golden seal. This is where it's at. I've gotten plenty of Amazon choice where I sent back because it just wasn't that great. It said it was going to be good or it looked like it was going to be great, but it wouldn't. We live in a world that tells us all kinds of things like this. Take this pill and you'll gain 30 pounds of muscle mass. Take this pill and you'll lose 30 pounds in three days the healthy way. Like, really? Overpromising and under-delivering. But just think about our world in general. Do this and you'll be happy. At some point you realize it won't. Get this. If you just get all these things, then you'll be happy. At some point you realize there's not enough stuff in the world to make you happy. Our world is based in over-promising and under-delivering while our God is the exact opposite. He gave them a promise And whenever he delivered, they could not even believe what all he did through them. We don't serve a God who over-promises and under-delivers. Rather, he promises and then he over-delivers. Now, what we see in this story is the timing, the when, the how, the why, all of it is significant. And the Holy Spirit came in a significant time, in a significant way, for a significant reason. So what does this mean for us? Does this mean you need to go out and hopefully speak in some new language? No, that's not what this is saying. If you want to learn more about tongues, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, 3, 14 is a lot more helpful than that. But this is just one of the ways that the Spirit worked here. What's the point for us? You know what? As I've thought about this, there's many things we can talk about that we'll get to in the book of Acts of how the Spirit can help you, what the Spirit can do in your life, how the Spirit is supposed to change you. But y'all be honest. I, I might be portraying something on you that isn't true of you, but as I reflected on my own heart, two other things became glaringly apparent. And I think there are two thoughts that, I'll, that, that we need to think about as we leave this morning. One, do you recognize how desperately in need you are of the Spirit's power? Do you recognize that we cannot do anything of lasting value apart from God's help? So much so, he told his disciples who had been walking with him for how many years? Don't do anything until the Spirit gets there. Just wait. Do you recognize how desperate you should be for the Spirit in your life to to help you live for Christ? We can't do that on our own. To help fight sin in your life? We can't do that on our own. To witness to people? We can't really do that on our own and have any effects. Do you recognize just how badly You need the Spirit this morning. Y'all, like the disciples, our greatest need is power. Do you recognize how badly you're in need this morning? I would ask you, what does your prayer life say? You know, for me, if somebody were just to ask me this question before I prepared this message, I'd say, yeah, I know I need the Spirit's power. But my prayer life often says something different. The way I live my life, oftentimes, God, I can do this. I can handle this one. Sometimes the way I prepare a sermon, I'm just going to get this thing, just get it right, just blow people, whatever. Without the Spirit's help, we can do nothing. Do you realize your need? What does your time in God's Word say? Do you really come to God's Word saying, God, I need you? 
Do you recognize the power that you and I need? Y'all, one grand truth that we have got to understand is the biggest gap in your and my life is not between what we know and what we don't know. So often we're told knowledge is power. If you just get more knowledge, you can live better or do better or whatever. That's just not true. Our greatest need isn't more knowledge. The biggest gap in everybody's life is not what they know and what they don't know. It's what they know and what they do. Think about it. If you applied everything you knew to do, I've said this before. If you applied everything you knew you were supposed to do, how much different would your life look? There's not a soul in this room that wouldn't say, I should put others before myself. But there's also not a soul who actually lives that out perfectly, right? Many of us struggle with that. All of us know, man, God's word is important. Tell me the last several verses you've memorized. Tell me how they've actually impacted your life. Even think about a sermon. I say this all the time. I can think of several sermons where God has really moved in my heart and broken me as I'm, as I'm preparing and preaching. And this is one of those sermons where I'm just like, man, there's so many voids in my life. I, need to, I don't feel worthy to say this because I am struggling with this too. But even think about this. You can sit through a sermon and feel convicted as mess and walk out and what's going to change? Most of the time, nothing, right? Because why? Our greatest need isn't knowledge. Our greatest need is power to do something about it. And what we have in the Spirit is the power to do something about it. But do you cry out to Him? Jesus said you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here we see they are filled with the Holy Spirit. These are two different things. I'm not going to get heavily into this, but being baptized with the Spirit is never the Spirit comes to dwell within you. That's whenever you become a follower of Jesus, but then you're called to be filled with the Spirit. It means to let the Spirit take over every aspect of your life, your thoughts, your actions, your words, everything. We're called to continually be filled with the Spirit. When was the last time you really cried out to the Lord, work in my life? Like the disciples, we need power. The second thought I'd leave you with this morning is like the disciples, we must expect God to move. It's a tough question to ask. But if God moved in your life in the way you really expected him to move, would much look different? I think so much in my life, I put very little expectations that God's going to do something through me. But I want you to think about the disciples. Think about the situation that they're in. They're waiting without a clue of what's about to happen. They have no idea. The disciples, they didn't know what it meant that they would receive power. They didn't know why Jesus would say, it is to your advantage that I leave so the Spirit could come. That made no sense to them. They didn't know what the Spirit was going to do to them. They didn't know when He would come. They didn't know how He would come, but what were they doing? Braden talked about this last week. They were together studying the Scriptures. They were together persistently praying. I, I bet you they're saying, Spirit, come. Come. Do something here. We see the mission. We need help. Do something. We see that they were all together and they were being obedient to what God told them to do. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And we see God showed up at the perfect time and they were ready because they were waiting for him. What's the point? Y'all, we serve the same God the disciples did. The same spirit that was in them is in us. There's no difference. The same mission that they are called to do is the same mission that we have. It isn't more daunting today for the gospel to reach the end of the earth than it was then. What we see is we have the same God with the same spirit, with the same mission. 
What are we doing with it? Do we expect God to actually move in our lives? God's word tells us he desires to work in you through his spirit. Do you desire him to? God's word says that he desires to make his name known among the world, in our area, around us. Do you desire for him to do that? Do you really believe that God's ways and timing is perfect? I think all of us would say yes. Well, then think about this. God has you here where you are at this time. Is there a reason? God has you in your workplace right now. Is his timing perfect? Are you there for a reason? I would say yes. Are you expecting him to do anything? Are you expecting him to use you in your workplace? Are you expecting him to use you? If you're a stay-at-home mom, are you expecting him to use you in some way there? Are you expecting him to use you? If you work from home, if you work out, wherever you're at, do you expect God to actually work? And one of the things one of my mentors has really challenged me with is he says, Merrick, I pray all the time for God just to give me a divine intersection. A divine intersection. I find whenever I expect God to move in my life, for some reason I bump into somebody who needs to hear about Jesus. I find whenever I'm expecting God to move, for some reason I bump into that person who's going through a really rough time and they don't know what to do. I find for some reason there's all these divine coincidences as I'm saying, God, use me. And y'all, once again, we can't explain them. The disciples could not explain them. They could not have expected this. It might sound crazy to say you're praying for God to do something and you have a knock at your door today and somebody says, hey, my car broke down. I don't have a phone. My phone's dead. Is there any way you could help me out? And you get an opportunity to help someone and talk to them about Christ. You just don't know. You really don't know. My whole point, though, is are you expectant? Do you expect God to do anything? Do you expect God to move? Do you expect God to give you a conversation or a situation or some what we maybe would see as random opportunity? Do you expect him to move? You know, two things are true. We need God's power. And we have to expect that God wants to do great things. And if you're his, he wants to do them through you. There's no doubting that. Do you expect him to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to praise you and thank you. God, for the way that you came, the way that you sent your spirit. Lord, if we know the story, whoever does, it can be easy to read this, God, and just know what the story says and and not catch the significance. God, your timing is perfect. Your ways are perfect. God, and even as the disciples were being extremely obedient in such a simple task, just wait. God, you moved in their lives. You promised them power, and whenever it came, you came in power. God, as we're going to continue to see in Acts, you work differently in different ways. It's not always in some big, magnificent way, God. Sometimes it's through the smallest of things. God, I pray, Lord, first and foremost, we are reminded that the God we serve is the same yesterday and today and forever. God, I pray you'd place a conviction on all of our lives that we would not claim to know you the most extraordinary God, the only God while just living an ordinary life. Compel us to live differently, God. Compel us to recognize our need, God. We're in need of your power. We're in need of your spirit. And God, if we're followers of yours, we have the spirit within us. And we know you're willing and you want to move, God. Help us expect great things from you. 
God, you move the way you move. Jesus said, John 3, 8, we don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes. It's the same the way the Spirit works so often. God, we don't always know how you're going to work, but you do. Creating us reliant hearts to expect great things from our God. Let's call this, Father, in your precious, in your holy Son's name. Amen. Now, just in closing this morning, I would ask you to, to think about those two questions. One, do you recognize that you can do nothing apart from God? What's your prayer life say? What's your time in God's word say? When was the last time you really cried out to God and said, God, I need you? Secondly, I'd ask you to think about, do you really expect God to move in your life? Do you desire him to move in your life? Will you ask him to this morning? Pray where you're at and respond how you feel led to do so.